Welcome to the Serialized Short Story Podcast, Secrets Out, by Christopher Chapman. Secrets Out is performed by the author. You can pre-order Secrets Out as an ebook that will play on Kindle, Nook, Kobo, and any iDevice you can get your hands on by going to goingpostalpublishing.com and clicking on the store link. Listener discretion is advised. There are adult situations, violence, and naughty words your mother wouldn't want you repeating to your neighbor. And now, the story continues. Welcome to Secrets Out, part of the Going Postal Cast. I am your host, author Chris Chapman, and it is the first Monday of the month, so that means a new story. What would that story be? Well, You've already downloaded this, so you probably already realize it is I Am Villain. This is a story that I wrote about four or five years ago. I wrote it down in a notepad, a longhand. It was a pretty good story, and then the notepad disappeared, along with a couple other short stories never to be seen or heard from again. I liked the story so much that I decided I was going to try to rewrite it, so I sat down in front of my computer this time, and I wrote out the whole story and actually think that I did a better job the second time around. But I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes trying to convince you. I'm just going to get into the story and let you figure it out for yourself if this is a good story or a great story or an average story. Here it is, I Am Villain Part 1. I Am Villain by Christopher Chapman I haven't always been evil, but it was who I became through circumstances that weren't completely my fault. I don't think that people are born good or evil. I believe that it's the life a person leads that determines whether or not they journey down the path towards good or venture in the way of evil. I was more of the latter. To the best of my knowledge, I was born under the name Francis Anderson, but that would not be the name I stuck with when I became known throughout the world. It lacked a certain amount of pizzazz that evil people like I needed when trying to build an evil empire, working towards that ultimate goal of trying to rule the world. Francis has no feeling, when you really think about it. Dr. Torture definitely has a ring to it, bringing fear into the hearts of anybody who hears it. I'd like to tell you that, like most supervillains, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Nope, not even close. My journey to being a supervillain started when my parents no longer wanted me. My father was always in and out of prison, and my mother needed to concentrate on her one true love, drugs. There was no need to waste time with a crying baby when that next hit was always around the corner. After it was apparent that they no longer were interested in me, I was dropped off at the Heavenly Orphanage, located 50 miles outside of Crystal City, where most of this story will take place. I wasn't yet two years old, yet I remember being led there, my hand engulfed by my mother's. I stared up at her, wondering why she was crying. I think I asked her, but she wouldn't speak to me. She brought me inside Heavenly Orphanage, which I was excited to see was full of other kids my age. 
she sat with an older woman and filled out paperwork while I played. At some point, I turned around and she was no longer there. I never saw her again. I wasn't just poor. I had nothing. I was locked in a room all day, waiting for somebody to come along and take me home. We, the kids at Heavenly Orphanage, had a set of clothes that was actually nice, but could only be worn on days when prospective families would visit in search of their new child. For me, those days came very rarely because of a scar on my face. I'm not sure how I got that scar, but I know that it was from before the day my mother brought me there. Maybe Daddy, in between stints in jail, got drunk one night and took a knife to my face. Maybe my mother was neglectful while she was high, and I got into something I shouldn't have. I knew at a fairly young age that I was different in other ways than just the scar. For one, I was smarter than everyone else at the orphanage. Being able to remember things from before I was two years old was the first good sign, but I also learned how to read when I was only three years old. Understanding complicated math equations came when I was six. By the time I was seven, I could speak Spanish and French to go with English. To say that I was a young genius would be underselling me. I was a genius. There was no young about it. At seven years old, I was smarter than any other adult I'd met. It wasn't even close. I could have cleaned up on any of the quiz shows that were out there. Too bad there was no such thing as who wants to be a millionaire back then. As you can expect, being a kid that had been abandoned by his parents, then left to rot in an orphanage, left me with a lot of issues. To expect me to grow up as a normal child was ridiculous. The orphanage tried their best to make me feel as though I were special. But who did they think they were kidding? I had a large fucking scar running down my face that made me look like a freak. Nobody could ever love me. I knew it, even at that young age. There are many good things that come from having such high intelligence, but there are also many drawbacks, including knowing the truth about the world at an age that most kids would be worrying about which G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, or Transformer they wanted to play with next. I knew how pathetic I was, and that the world would be cruel to me. I decided, even all those years ago, that I wasn't going to be anybody's whipping boy. I was going to take matters into my own hands. I realized that my scar would make people fear me as I got older. I knew I could use that to my advantage. My first introduction into the world of crime also came when I was seven years old, when it appeared as though I was no longer a viable candidate to be adopted. I started small, stealing food from other kids in the orphanage, using my high intelligence to convince them that the food that they were eating was in fact mine and not theirs. When dealing with kids of low intellect, it is not difficult to fool them. There was no enjoyment in the sport of convincing them that what they believed to be true wasn't. When I was eight, I was arrested for the first time after I robbed the First National Bank of Crystal City. I made it off with over $30,000 that day, only to be turned in by the people who claimed to be looking out for my best interests. They were foolish. 
I had enough money on me to take care of all of the kids in the orphanage for six months, maybe more. I wouldn't have done that. But they didn't know that. The cops went easy on me. I convinced them that it was all a misunderstanding and that I was far too young to properly pull off a bank heist. I didn't say it that way, dumbing down my speech to make me seem like a true eight-year-old. Nobody wanted to believe that an eight-year-old had actually attempted to rob a bank. Even with the surveillance cameras in the bank showing me taking the money, I got away with it. It was all too easy, and having my intellect allowed me to learn from my mistakes. My second bank job went off without a hitch. That time I got away with it by wearing a better disguise that made me seem six inches taller than I was. On the way out, with nearly twice the amount I'd stolen the first time, I made sure to stand next to the piece of tape next to the door that they used to tell how tall the robber was. I was smart about it and gave every minute detail a great deal of thought. Thanks to what happened before, I was questioned about the robbery. The police visited me at the orphanage, wanting to ask me questions. I played dumb, just as I had before, but they were a little persistent this time. I tried to figure out what evidence they had on me. I was fairly certain that they had nothing to go on. They asked me to stand against the wall. I did so, and they measured my height. The two cops looked at each other and then said goodbye. I robbed three other banks over the next two years, each one more elaborate than the last, and taken in more money with each crime. The police had no answer for my tactics, as I was able to build weapons that I could use to evade the police, as well as rob the banks in less time than anyone could imagine. I'd built a laser that could cut through the walls of any safe, even those thick ones that they were upgrading to near the end. All I had to do was press a button, and 30 seconds later there was a hole in the safe large enough to walk through. It was robbing banks that gave me my first henchman. I'd already gotten a taste of good living as a criminal, and I knew where my future lied. Getting henchmen seemed like the next logical step, and it wasn't as if I didn't have enough money to do it. I was 10 years old, and had over a half million dollars stowed away in a hiding spot I'd built on the orphanage's property. You'd be amazed at the amount of people who are willing to help you as long as they are properly compensated. Sure, they're not the most trustworthy people in the world, but in today's day and age, who really is trustworthy? Even everybody at the orphanage turned a blind eye to what was happening because of the generous donations that were being made. My crew grew exponentially during the first year as I expanded my crimes beyond just robbing banks. I found that going after the armored trucks that brought the money to and from the banks was equally profitable and easier to pull off when you had proper equipment. My first armored truck came when I was 11. I was a pro at 12. My first time in prison came a year later. I'm not proud of getting caught. Somebody with my intelligence shouldn't have never been caught the way I had. I made a mistake. It was as simple as that. I had been getting smarter about committing my own crimes. Having henchmen to boss around had given me the flexibility of sitting behind while they carried out my plans. I thought I was giving them enough money, enough security, where they wouldn't squeal on me if they got pinched. I've come to realize that no matter how much money you spend, 
they will turn on you when presented with a choice of living behind bars or getting a drastically reduced sentence. That's what happened to me. The district attorney offered one of my men a minimum security prison for two years, and he took it, ratting me out in the process. I spent a year in prison. I was supposed to be there for a minimum of 15, but I seemed to be as capable of freeing myself from prison as I am about most other things. I planned for my escape within weeks of arriving in prison. I studied the layout, as well as the guards, looking for weaknesses. It wasn't hard to find the pattern, thus finding the perfect opportunity to plan my escape. Promising spots on my payroll, I was able to acquire the help of other prisoners, and even some guards. The demand was high, so I had to handpick the men I could trust, and that I thought wouldn't rat me out if they were caught in the process of escaping. I also sent messages to the outside, getting members of my gang to help out. The plan was set to all go down on the one-year anniversary of the day I arrived in prison. The plan succeeded without any problems. I escaped that prison, returning to my life on the outside, returning to my life as the leader of a crime syndicate. I was no longer welcome at the orphanage. My time in prison meant that I was no longer welcome there no matter how much my money had helped them out over the years. They paid for turning their backs on me. It wasn't as if I needed them anymore. I had more than enough money to buy buildings three times as large as the entire orphanage. The only reason I stayed is because I wanted to keep the illusion that I was an innocent youth. Living in an orphanage gave me that facade, allowing me to stay hidden while the outside world looked for a more viable criminal to place the blame on, all while I laughed at their stupidity. That time it ended, and they paid for it. It was a shame to burn down the only building I'd called home until I was sent to prison. It was an even bigger shame that four children burned to death in that fire before they could make their escape. It should have bothered me that such innocent people had to die, but I found that I felt no remorse for them. Nobody was innocent. As people, we are born guilty. It's our duty as members of the human race to make the most of our lives, removing that guilty title at all costs. They hadn't done that, and I didn't care that they were dead. My money was out of the building, and so was I. That was what mattered. My time in prison created other problems, namely groups of criminals that had moved in on my territory. I learned that while I was away, Others had robbed banks and armored trucks. That could have helped my appeals case, blaming them for the crimes I'd done, but I never filed the paperwork. I had no intention of leaving prison in the conventional way. The plan had always been to escape, but that didn't excuse those who wanted to be like me. I did my homework, finding out who was responsible for these crimes. I hired men that worked for the other groups, taking them under my wing, and promising them prosperity and freedom after I took care of those who had tried to step in on my action. Having learned lessons during my prison stay, I should have stayed out of the action, or simply taken some time off. I guess that I hadn't learned as much as I thought. I was in the forefront, firing the first shot that hit their guard with a bullet between the eyes. I still remember watching as his eyes rolled into the back of his head as he dropped to his knees then fell face first 
to the blacktop. I'd like to think that I am a fair man. I believe that is why I didn't kill everybody right away. As we surrounded them, killing anyone who pulled a gun or knife on us, I gave them chances to join us. Their initiation was simple. All they had to do was either give us information about who was in charge or kill a member of their gang. I was surprised to see how many took the second option. I saw a guy turn on his partner and blow off half of his face with no remorse. I am cold-hearted, but this man was vile. He later became one of my best workers. The man in charge of this group was named Howie Corolla, an Italian man who thought he was the biggest crime lord in Crystal City. I'm going to kill you, Howie said, kneeling before me. I had a gun pointed at his head. I will kill you and your entire family. I have no family, I said, looking down at him with contempt. He looked at me, a surprised look spreading on his face. You're just a kid. Yeah, so? He laughed. I initially didn't know what was so goddamn funny. It didn't take long for me to realize that he wasn't taking me seriously, even as I held a gun against his head. My men, many of which had been his men just minutes previous, held their guns toward him as well. He had nobody left. A kid can't run this city, he said, still laughing. You think you can bring the city to its knees, even while you wait for your balls to drop? He paused, his laughter dying. You think that your enemies will take you seriously when your voice cracks while you go through puberty? What's your name, kid? At this time, I was still being called Frank Anderson, but that's not what I told him. My mind always worked faster than anybody else's. I had a rare opportunity, with so many new faces, to bring the fear I struck in others to an all-new level. I decided at that very moment to create a persona that properly showcased my criminal superiority. I was on top of the mountain and controlled the biggest crime syndicate in all of Crystal City. A man of that stature needed a name, a proper name, and I knew it because I learned that it was my name all along, even if I hadn't realized it until that very moment. Dr. Torture. I told him in my toughest voice. But I was not living up to the name at that point. Instead of doing something foolish, like pulling off his toenails, I did the only humane thing I could think of. Pulling the trigger. The far side of his head blew outwards as the bullet finished ripping through his brain. I turned to the other men, intending to make a point. Let this be a lesson to anybody who tried to take from me. This is my city. Crystal City and everything held within belonged to me. While I may not have lived up to the name that I created at that point, I would more than make up for it later on. First of all, I changed my appearance, wanting to take on the persona I'd created. Gone were the normal clothes I wore, which made me feel just like everybody else. If I was going to be a doctor, I was going to dress like it. I had some of my men rob a hospital, making off with several white coats that I could wear. They look just like lab coats, but beggars can't be choosers. I looked good in the coat, and everybody in my gang agreed. Well, they were going to anyway. It seems that they respected my authority, as well as the money I paid them. 
Thus, they would agree with anything I told them. At that point, it was good to be me. Over the next few years, I was at the top of my game, even as puberty threatened to derail everything. I was too smart, too strong, and too determined to allow my cracking voice, as well as the swarming hormones, derail everything I'd accomplished. I kept hearing what that dead bastard told me about how I wasn't going to be able to lead because of my age. Those words became fuel that I used to get through it. My crew and I robbed banks, armored trucks, as well as large industrial equipment I could use for my weapons of mass destruction. Two times I was able to hold Crystal City hostage, and twice I got the money I requested. They saw me for who I was and wouldn't dare get in the way of my plans, which by now I had come to realize were truly evil. There was no way around it, and I accepted that. That's what it was all about, evil. I could go around denying this and that, but in the end, I would only be lying to those around me as well as myself. I'm not really sure how I got to that point. Even looking back at the pages I've written about this subject, it hasn't given me a much clearer look into why I became the evil man that I am today, but I had become that nonetheless and fully embraced it, wrapping my arms around it as if it were a long-lost lover. I suppose I could have done something about it, perhaps even turned myself in to the authorities so I could get the help I needed. But where was the fun in that? I was enjoying myself and the fun I was having way too much to even consider something as foolish as allowing myself to go back to prison. Even the police wanted nothing to do with me going back to prison. They saw me for who I was and feared me. I didn't blame them. Not at all. I had them all in the palm of my hands. Everything was great. I was on top of the world and there was nothing that could change that. At age 17, I was already a millionaire and could only see myself becoming more powerful and even richer than I already was. Until he came along. There you have it. That was I Am Villain Part 1. This will be a three-part story. I'll be back next week with Part 2 and back the week after that with Part 3. So there has been a lot going on in my world. It has been hectic. It has been frustrating. I have basically wanted to pull my hair out, what little is left of it. For those of you who have been listening to the Naked Bootleg podcast, Drew and I joke around about how, how old I'm getting and the aches and pains that I have. I've been dealing with a little bit of pain in my hip for over a year now, one of those job casualties. Falling on the job, always fun, but, you know, had pain off and on for the last year and had been going to physical therapy recently, strengthening the hip, trying to get it better because it was diagnosed as hip bursitis. Then in the last week, I was working and slipped just a wee bit and aggravated the hip some more and went into the physical therapist on Wednesday, and I was joking around with him. I said, hey, I'm going to make you earn your money today. 
I just figured he was going to stretch me out a little bit and make me feel better. So I said, you know, let's see what you can do with this. And so he does his job. We're about 10 minutes in. He's stretching me out. He's moving my leg one way. Does this hurt more? He's moving my leg the other way. Does this hurt more? And eventually he just sets my leg down and says, I don't think I can do anything for you. I think you have a tor- uh, a labral tear is how he put it. Ay, caramba. So I go to the doctor on Friday. She takes a look at it, moves me around, and she's not gentle at all. She's basically putting my leg in a figure four leg lock and just trying to beat the crap out of me. And she tells me, yes, probably torn. It's probably a torn labrum, but she doesn't know until we can get an MRI scheduled. And because it's a work-related thing, getting it scheduled is going to be a pain in the butt. But that's not the fun part of this adventure. I have to, Because it's workman's comp, I have to have her fill out the paperwork to say, what can I do? Obviously, I've been working on it for the last year. It's pain, but it's tolerable pain. I've always been able to deal with a lot of pain. And so I figure, well, she'll just kind of limit me a little bit. And she fills it out accordingly, saying I can basically do a little bit of walking here and there, try not to put too much weight on it, I can stand for a while. But then she checks the wrong freaking box. So I get a call after I've taken care of everything, I'm coming in the next day to just kind of have a tweak job or whatever where I can do some other stuff. And basically they tell me, yeah, you have to go to the doctor and uh, get her to uncheck this box and check the other box. And I look at the clock. It is 4.55. They close in five minutes. No way I can get there in time. So uh, three-day weekend, yay for me, but at the same time, uh, dealing with stupid people, I swear. And not that they're stupid, just they're trying to do their job and they make mistakes. And in the end, it's me who gets the short end of the stick. Whoopity-doo, right? But that means I got to have a good weekend with my kids, my girlfriend. It was awesome. I took three of the four kids to see the Lego movie. That is a very good movie. I recommend it to any of you with kids, and heck, some of you adults without kids, it is still a good enough movie where I think you'll enjoy it. And now into the good news department. This will be the last time you hear me on this particular microphone, so hopefully there's not a lot of popping going on because that is the problem with this kind of microphone. This is my, I think this is my third, the third time I've owned a similar version of this microphone, and it always sounds really good when you first buy it. And then four, five, six months in, you get a ton of popping. And that's what I'm getting now is a ton of popping. Every time I basically move my face in the wrong direction, I get popping because it's a headset, and you get popping from the ear areas, and you just it always comes filtering into the microphone. Not the greatest sound. You'll actually hear one or two subtle pops maybe even three, in the actual part one of the story that you just listened to. I'm sure you heard it, and I'm sure it was like nails on a chalkboard. I finally ponied up the dough this past week to buy a new microphone, an actual podcasting microphone. I will be playing with that later this week when I record next week's episode. The story is already recorded, but I will be putting in my intros and outros with the new microphone, and we'll see how that sounds. I'll play around with it and see if I can't make myself actually sound good. 
And lastly, before I get going here, I am going to be moving along and just plowing through the stories of Secrets Out far quicker now that I'm going to have this new microphone. I should have fewer issues like having to stop every time I think there was a pop, and I should be able to start just mowing down the stories, getting through them a lot faster. And so what that'll mean is that the final product of Secrets Out will be available sooner rather than later. So that's going to do it. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do so by emailing me at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. You can send me your questions, your comments, your cheap shots. The website is goingpostalpublishing.com. On there, you might see a banner that says Amazon. You click on the Amazon banner, go do your shopping, and a few pennies from every dollar will come back into Going Postal Publishing for things like the microphone I just bought. So, yay, win-win. The Facebook is facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. I have been posting most of my stuff on there with it mirroring on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash goingpostalpub. That is it from me. I will be back next week with part two of I Am Villain. And so until then, you all take care. Bye-bye, and thank you for going postal with me. You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. 